We are going to continue in our study of the gospel according to Mark this morning. Uh, We started it some weeks ago. If you're new here, this has always been my habit ever since we started the church 30 years ago, and that's to preach through books. Uh, And I do that for a number of reasons. Number one, I don't have to sit in my office on Monday morning and try to figure out what I'm going to preach on the next Sunday because I already know. (laughs) So it makes my job a lot easier. But at the same time, we understand that there is a flow to Scripture, that one verse is connected to one after. And if we're just picking and choosing a few verses from different places in the Bible, we're not ever going to get the full meaning of any passage because it's all connected. So we've done this ever since we started 30 years ago, and I think it's, uh, it's something we've gotten very used to doing. Uh, and I can't imagine approaching preaching any different than this. But we've done a lot of the Bible. We've actually, I've preached through the whole New Testament. And uh, we've done a good bit of the Old Testament. And so we're actually, with Mark, we're going back and we're preaching. I'm preaching through Mark for the second time. Uh, So anyway, and I I don't know about you, but but every time I read Scripture, I see more and more there. I mean, it's just so deep. And, and, And the more you read it, the more you expose yourself to it, the deeper it gets. And... There's always more to consider. There's always more to learn. But we're picking up in the gospel according to Mark uh, this morning. uh, Chapter 2, and we're going to be reading from verses 13 through 17, which is a relatively short passage for me, so it should tell you something. There's a lot of good stuff in those few short verses. (laughs) He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed them, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Sitting here reading that this morning, and I'm wondering if this sermon even does that passage justice. Seriously. Not a lot of verses compared to what we usually read. But there's a lot there. Just remember Jesus is in Capernaum. You know, that fishing village where he had called James and John and Peter and Andrew to be his disciples. Uh, You may not realize it, but it seems as though Capernaum, at least for the beginning of Jesus' ministry, what's called his Galilean ministry. Capernaum kind of served as his home base. It was a place he went back to to get rest and respite on occasion, that sort of thing. But one of the things we note here is his popularity is increasing. And it's getting very, uh, very difficult for Jesus to have much of a private life at all more and more public in this that and the other but at the same time we know that Jesus is human just like us that he needs time of rest he needs time of respite and that's why he's gone there 
He's gone to Capernaum for a little bit of R&R. It's interesting that even though Jesus was born in Judea, he grew up in Galilee, in Nazareth, right? So it really shouldn't surprise us that the beginnings of his ministry have really focused in, in Galilee. But just remember the way the promised land was laid out in those days, and that was Galilee to the north, which was inhabited mostly by Jewish people, and then there was Samaria in between. And then Judea in the south. So the promised land was broken into two parts. Basically Galilee in the north separated from Judea in the south. But Jesus' ministry started in Galilee. Not in Judea. Not in the area of Jerusalem and so on. Not in the area of Bethlehem where he was born. But in Galilee where he grew up. And we need to understand some things about the culture in those days, and that is the Galilean Jews were not very well accepted by the Judean Jews. They were considered to be a lesser class. So the fact that Jesus was a Galilean Jew is probably surprising to some people. The fact that many of his 12 disciples were also Galileans. John and Peter. James and Andrew. Lots of the other guys. Some of you are familiar a little bit with maybe ancient Greek history. We've all heard something of Aristotle, right? This famous Greek teacher that lived back uh, in the 1330 B.C. time frame. He developed the type of teaching whereby he would walk along and his students would walk along with him and he would teach them as they were going. Sounds very much like the type of teaching that Jesus did. A lot of time, uh, the schooling that was going on with him and his disciples, they were walking from one place to another, and he's teaching them as they go. Jesus went to his audience. Very rarely did his audience come to him. And we know, because all of this is being orchestrated by God the Father, that Jesus had a long list of divine appointments with specific and particular people that the Father had scheduled at the very beginning of time. And he was not going to miss a single one of those appointments. He did miss a single one of those appointments. But very often, he went to them rather than they coming to him. And we know this. We know that all of this is being orchestrated by God the Father, that Jesus just happened to be passing by the tax booth on this particular day where, where Levi, 
or Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, just happened to be sitting there. Not just a happenstance encounter. That this was a divine appointment established at the very beginning of time. Jesus knew that. Matthew did. Even though the details of our own calling or Christian vocation may differ in some ways, they have some elements in common with each other. In other words, my life as a Christian is going to look somewhat different than your life as a Christian. For a lot of reasons, and one of those is we move around in different circles of people and you know, this, that, and the other, and, uh, and all kinds of reasons. But our calling has some things in common, some elements in common, all of us. We're called to worship God, both individually and corporately, as we're doing this morning. We're called to be encouragers of other believers. I hope that there are people in this room that encourage you, and I hope you encourage them. We're living in a world that seems to be becoming more and more hostile to our way of thinking and our lifestyle. We're also called to share the gospel with other with unbelievers. When we have the opportunity to do that. That God has called all of us to his service. Just like he's doing Matthew at this point. Many tax gatherers and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were uh, many who followed him. Something that the scribes of the Pharisees took exception to. Why? They had a hard time accepting Jesus because Jesus had the audacity to associate directly with sinful people. Which they didn't do. You wouldn't catch them in the room with another person that was considered to be one of those dirty, rotten sinners. They had to remain, keep themselves clean. How do you do that? You do that by not getting going where and being where the dirt is. You isolate, you disassociate from everything else. It's hard to imagine how anyone could actually convince themselves that they are holy and righteous and, and not sinful. And that's where these Pharisees were and, and, and others in the Jewish community. They thought they were the righteous ones. They thought they were the holy ones. They thought the best thing for everyone else would be to be just like they are. 
But ultimately, scribes and the Pharisees simply refused to see themselves as they really were. Sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Just like everyone else. Everyone was in the same boat. Well, I'm sure you probably would agree with this, that uh, <laughs> people typically have a sliding scale when it comes to right and wrong. And very often we have one standard for me and another standard for everybody else. This is what Paul has to say about that thinking. You have no excuse, O man, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the same things. You know, this world would be transformed. The church would be transformed if every person in it spent more time dealing with their own sin than contemplating the sins of everybody else. Because the reality is this is we typically have one standard for ourselves and another standard for other people. And consequently, we have this innate ability to justify our motive and our actions. About to thir- finish up 30 years of ministry, and I've been not so actively involved in our presbytery in more recent years, but for years I served on the examining committee at Presbytery, very much involved in presbytery business and plant, church planning efforts and just all kinds of things. But I've been, so I've been doing it for 30 years. And a lot of it is really good. I mean, I, I like to go. Ask Lloyd. I like, I, what I hate is the traffic because it's always in Orlando. It's not only in Orlando. It's on the other side of Orlando. And I abhor that trip. And so Lloyd goes with me most of the time. He has to listen to me gripe all the way down there and gripe all the way back. <laughs> but he'll tell you when I'm there that I actually enjoy what's going on. But let me tell you, sometimes we do very heart-wrenching things at Presbytery. I've done some things at Presbytery that just ripped my heart out. Because one of our responsibilities is to discipline pastors. And let me just tell you this. This is just an example of how blinded we can be to our own sin and how it is that we can justify our own sin and at the same time condemn other people. The most difficult thing that we ever have to do at Presbytery is to discipline one of our teaching elders. That's where it happens. And very often, these are men that, I know, that I've known on a more personal level. I've served on committees with them, or maybe some of them I went to seminary with, you know, this, that, or the other. They're, not, they're just not people that I just know their name, but I don't know anything about them, and vice versa. 
But I can't tell you how many discipline cases of teaching elders that we've had to deal with over the last 30 years. And it is heart-wrenching. But you know the surprising thing is this. Is very often when we're going through one of those proceedings, we're disciplining someone who it turns out was doing exactly the same thing as someone else was doing at the same time. And they voted to defrock the other. Now doesn't that blow your mind? But it's just an example of how we can justify ourselves and at the same time condemn other people. Knowing what the scribes of the Pharisees were thinking and and hearing what they were saying, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But every now and then you'll come across someone who sees themselves as this righteous person who cares about righteousness in ways that no one else does. All people suffer with self-righteousness. And that self-righteousness very often blinds us to reality. Jesus of the whole of mankind from the dawn of time was the only truly self-righteous person. That we are called to be righteous, which tells us we're unrighteous, but we're called to be righteous, which means this, is if we're going to be righteous, the righteousness has to come from outside of us. Not within, because it doesn't exist within. It has to come from the outside. We have what's called an alien righteousness by theologians. And we know that comes to us through our faith in Jesus Christ. That when God looks upon us now, where we are right now, he sees us as perfectly righteous, because he sees us through the righteousness of Jesus, not as we see ourselves. Or as other people see us. We all acknowledge what we're talking about here as Christians, but it's so easy to fall into the trap 
of turning a blind eye to our own sin and fine-tuning in on the sins of other people. Roman Catholics actually have divided sin into two categories. Some is serious, some is less serious. Mortal sins compared to venial sins. Mortal sins are the ones that can, are, are worthy of eternal damnation. Venial sins are just like misdemeanors. But the problem is this, is that dichotomy does not exist in Scripture anywhere. That God sees all sin. as mortal sin. Now I want to say this. I'm not saying this morning that there are not degrees of sin. Don't, don't understand that because I don't think for one minute uh, that God looks upon lust and the act of physical adultery in exactly the same way. You follow what I'm saying? The Reformed Church and the Reformers, every one of them, Luther, Calvin, and, and they strenuously maintained that there's a difference between lesser sins and what they called gross or more heinous sins. But I just want us to recall this morning that Peter, Andrew, James, John, now Levi, who's also called Matthew, all from a human perspective, were very unlikely candidates for the ministry. Not any of them would have been anyone that anyone in their right mind would have chosen to do what Jesus is calling these men to do. Do we see ourselves in that same light? Has anybody here ever heard of a guy named Alton Hardy? Probably not. He recently wrote an autobiography, and I would encourage every one of you to read it. He's a black man who grew up in Alabama. who started out with unbelievably humbly beginnings, but is today an ordained PCA teaching elder. Probably in his community, he would have been the last person on the face of the planet that anyone would ever expect to become a teaching elder in the PCA. Let me just read some of what he writes. This is what he says in the foreword. The story I'm about to tell you is true. It is my story. It is not an easy story to tell, nor is it going to be an easy to hear. But it is God's story. So it is, therefore, a story of hope. 
Let me just read a few excerpts. He, he said, I was born in a shack, catty-cornered to the county dump near Sardis, Alabama. Now let me tell you something. Justin and I, years ago, when they were living up in Kings, uh, Kingsland, Georgia, for just a, a short period of time, we had to go to the dump. And let me tell you, we're, we, you know, it's way off in the distance. And Justin had this stuff in the back of his truck. They just moved there. They had some stuff they want to get rid of. So we're going to the dump. And let me tell you, you're driving down the road, and you get this awful stench miles before you get to the dump. And once we got there, you don't waste any time. <laughs> you get that stuff out of that truck as quick as you can so you can get out of there and you're trying to hold your breath the whole I have never in my lifetime smelled such a stink ever can you imagine living beside a landfill or, 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 or you know, sanit supposedly sanitary I don't know why they call them sanitary because they certainly don't seem to be sanitary at all that's where I grew up right by the dump I was almost five years old before I started to talk. Can you imagine? I didn't even start to walk until I was four. Can you imagine? My family all thought I was simple-minded or at least a little brain-damaged. He had a terrible home life. At night, my father would beat the hell out of my mama. And that happened pretty much every night. Mama spent more nights than we can count hiding, crying, sleeping in the woods. We were a hung, and then eventually her father abandoned his family when he was like eight or ten years old. So now they're on their own. We were hungry a lot after my father left. More often than not, it came from the dump. Can you imagine feeding your children from scraps that you collect from the garbage at the dump? My mama hardly ever smiled, and I never heard her laugh, not once. I also never understood the idea of God. I assumed he was a wise man. That was about the end of it. I wrote something down here. I'm not going to read it to you this morning. It's just so unbelievable. First time I was ever called a nigger was during the summer of my 10th year. I was never scared of white people. I just knew that they were superior. The idea of poverty can't be captured in words. I must, it must be experienced to be believed.
My identity, all I knew of myself, was in my skinny, scrawny, weak as water, poor as dirt, black as night, stuttering and stammering body. I was a fatherless, friendless fool. I probably smelled awful. I had terrible hygiene. I rarely brushed my teeth and never wore deodorants. I didn't have anything of worth. At school, the bathrooms were not segregated, but it was common knowledge that black kids shouldn't venture into one of them alone. I got very good at holding my bladder and bowels from 7 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon. Maybe you're one of those people that uh, you think maybe God got a pretty good deal with you. Wasn't true for Matthew. Why do I even bring this up? This is because from a human perspective, Alton Hardy, who is a PCA teaching elder today, would have been a very unlikely candidate, not someone that anyone would have chosen, just like no one in their right mind would have chosen Peter, Andrew, James, John, and, and Matthew either. You've heard me say this before, you know, because I grew up in Ocala. Every now and then I'll bump into somebody that I went to school with, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 70 years ago almost. Not 70. They can't believe what I do. It's actually quite enjoyable (laughs) for me (laughs) to see the expressions. You know, my, my story is nothing compared to this fella. But we all have a story. And for all of us, there's some of it had to do with hurt and harm. And for all of us, some of it had to do with good and great. But, but here we have Jesus taking this guy, Matthew. And think of all the people this man has influenced down through the ages. Through what he wrote in his gospel. He's even touched you and me. 2,000 years later. Because of the power of his testimony. Because of the power of what he writes. God has called every one of us to service, some to different service, some to more special kind of service. But he does not call anyone, anyone into the faith without also calling them into service. It's part of our vocation. is to serve him and to serve the body. 
let me tell you, if Jesus can use Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew, he can use you and me. Did I mention we're having a congregational meeting next Sunday before church? Did I mention that? Uh, just keep that in mind. And I would encourage all of you to be praying about it. Uh, and one of the things that I hope you will be praying about it is this, is that God's will will be done. That's what we're looking for. Is what is God's will in this picture? That's the most important puzzle piece. What is it that God would have us do? So please, please be praying about it, thinking about it this week, and make sure you're here because this is one of the most important things that you're going to do as a member of the church. So anyway, is your week going to be any different because you were here this morning? You think? The rest of the day going to be any different? We're going to forget what we talked about this morning two hours from now and just go about business as normal? <laughs> See, that's the, that's the amazing thing about the Word of God. It's not, you're not just reading words out of a book. The Word of God is transformational. It changes people. And we're people that need to change. Just like Matthew was. Boy, he was going to change a bunch. I hope that as you look back through your life, that you don't see yourself the same now as you did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I hope that you have good reason to conclude that you've grown in Christ, that your passion for Him has increased, that your love for Him is growing ever more. That's the most important thing that you can do for yourself. It's the most important thing you can do for all of your loved ones. You can, it's the most important thing you can do for everyone around you. To grow in Christ. And as you do, you'll find out there's nothing in existence like it. It is wonderful to die to sin and to live in him.